You are listening to the Vine Church Sermon Podcast. Thanks for joining us. For more information about the Vine Church, please visit our website at www.thevinemadison.org. Here today, we've got a little bit of housekeeping to do. Um, so, all of you heard last week if you were here about our covenant of fellowship renewal. And so we're doing that with all of our members. We're just asking you to renew your covenant of fellowship, to read it, to consider it, remind yourself who you are as a member of this church. And we're just kind of all uh, doing that. And so there is uh, QR codes on the tables here in the back. We didn't have a great response last week. And I don't think that's because uh, we're going to be a church of 10 people anytime soon. But it's always just one of those things, like, ah, I'll do it later, right? Because I said we wanted to get these wrapped up by October 1st. Um, but it would help us a lot if you could do that. It'll take you, you know, two seconds if you know there's no issues. Um, and, but we would encourage you to read it. So actually it probably shouldn't take two seconds. Um, but read it. Remind yourself who we are as a church. And then you can do a digital signature. Just put your camera on the QR code right there. Um, and you can do that. So we'd love to get this wrapped up in the next couple weeks. And so, um, and, and if there's concerns with that, we would love to hear from you. Our elders would love to hear from you. So please reach out to us, um, and we can get this wrapped up. All right. One other bit of, of housekeeping is uh, this is my last sermon of the year because I'm going on sabbatical. And so, yeah, thank you. I'm excited about it, too. And, uh, and so, yeah, just a real quick word about that. Um, I leave on Saturday to do my last week of work in Morocco. And so I'm going to be connecting with our team over there and doing a lot of uh, trips recently because COVID took away our ability to do a lot of our normal trips. And so we're trying to kind of reinstate some of that. And they've asked our team over there has asked me to come and do some pastoral work with them. And so that will be my last week of work before sabbatical starts on October 1st. And so I want to just say, like, how much I love this church, how much I love being a pastor here, how much I love you guys. Um, it's a joy to, to, to serve as a leader here. And, and sabbatical is really, really good for everybody, you know. And I want to be a part of a church, and so do you that prioritizes rest, right? Rest is a very important part of being healthy. And a couple things, like for me, what's really good about sabbatical is to remind myself that my identity as a Christian is not necessarily tied to me being a pastor. And sometimes those two, when you, when you work as a pastor, can get kind of muddy and blurry. And that can, over time, be very spiritually unhealthy. That my identity is not wrapped up in ministry. My identity is rooted in who God says I am as a Christian according to God's word, right? It's also really, really good for you guys and for me to be reminded this church isn't about me. It's not about me. Like, God forbid, you know, I've got cancer that I don't know about and I'm gone in 12 months. I don't think that's the true. But if it did happen, that's okay because it's not about me. And this church isn't about me. And sabbatical is great for everybody to remind ourselves, like, the kingdom of God is beyond one person, it's beyond one church, you know, and so it's really good for everybody in that sense. And so just really, really thankful for 
sabbatical and being a part of a church that prioritizes rest. All right? All right. Well, what are we doing this, uh, what are we doing today? We're in week two of our vision series. And so last week we focused on the gospel. And if you were gone, I'd encourage you to go on the website and, and go back and review that. Remind yourself of uh, what, what the gospel is. How does that apply to my life? What are the implications for living a gospel-centered life? And the thesis last week was this. Human beings are made right with God by humbling themselves before God and casting themselves upon his mercy expressed in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. So what does that mean? That means we're not saved by works done in righteousness. We don't merit our own salvation through efforts. There's no ladder of good deeds to climb. That's not Christianity. We're saved from God's just wrath on sin by God's love for us. As we cast ourselves on his mercy, not trying to earn his mercy, we cast ourselves on his mercy. What does that look like? It looks like repentance and faith. Faith in Jesus' works for us, not our works that we try to give to him. We cast ourselves on his mercy as we believe by faith that his work is enough to save us. That was last week. And that news, think about what that does. If that's true, and it is, that changes our vertical relationship with God. Right? Think about it. Like, no longer... Is it some kind of default setting that we all have of trying to earn our salvation? But what does that create? It creates a transactional relationship with God. I'm going to give you my good works, and then you'll give me eternal life. Right? It's transactional like that. Like, I'll give you my good works, and then you'll somehow, this is how twisted it is, God is then in my debt. He owes me something. Right? See how twisted that is? That's not Christianity. That's not our parable from last week of Luke 18. What does that lead to? Think about what that leads to. That's going to lead to either pride or fear. Pride in that I somehow attain my subjective standard of earning God's favor. Yeah, I did it. And all these other losers, they're not doing it. So, man, I, I can be pretty, pretty proud, proud of my performance, right? Or you view yourself as a failure I didn't live up to my subjective standard of what it takes to earn God's approval and, and salvation. And so then I'm just thrust into despair, right? Those are the twin ditches that we always fall into if we don't have the gospel, the good news of what Jesus did for us in history as the centerpiece of our thinking. And we saw that last week in Jesus' parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. The gospel has to change how we relate to God and think about him. But now we turn to community. How does the gospel affect community? How does the gospel affect how we re relate to one another, horizontally speaking, right? And last week's parable hinted at this. We often miss it, right? But I want to I read last week's parable and let's just get this over with now. Uh, I do have reading glasses now, all right? So one step away from the nursing home. Here we go. 
it's just like I was doing this, and I was like, there's something wrong. And then I put these on. I'm like, wow, this is way more enjoyable. <laughs> Our bodies are wasting away, but we're being renewed day by day. That's what the Bible says, right? All right, here we go. So um, Luke 18, starting in verse 9. If you have a Bible, I'd encourage you to follow along, or it'll be on the screen. He also told them this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. But the tax collector, oh, sorry, uh, I fast uh, twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. Verse 13, but the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, meaning justified before God, a vertical relationship, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So you can see how that affects the vertical, right? He went home justified before God because of his casting himself on God's mercy. But did you see that it also talks about our horizontal relationships? Look at verse 9 again. He also told them this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. And here it is. And treated others, that's the horizontal, others with contempt. So if there's a gospel breakdown, if you relate to God based on merit, like the Pharisees talking about, like here's all the stuff that I'm doing, God, praise me. Or earning things from God based on your perceived sense of obedience, it's also, according to verse 9, going to have an effect on your horizontal relationships. It's going to have an effect on community, right? Tempted towards pride and contempt toward those that don't have it all together like you do or you perceive that you might do. And when that happens, what happens? There's always going to be disunity in community. We're always going to see disunity in community. Disintegration of community. Falling apart of community. Disunity in community. And when community, think about it, we all know this intuitively, when, when community is not strong and united, what happens? It's weak. It's weak. It can't do what it's called to do. It's susceptible to attack. It doesn't look good to the onlooking world. So you can already feel, right, that there's a lot at stake here. Starting in verse 9 of Jesus' parable. There's a lot at stake with what we're considering today. So, so that's what we're going to be considering in, in, in week two of our vision series on community. And the point, I'll just tell you right out of the gate, is this. Listen, community that is strong in the face of challenges 
is founded upon mutual humility that flows from seeing and savoring the good news of what Jesus did in history. Let me say that again. There's a lot there. I get that. Track with this. Community that is strong in the face of challenges is founded upon mutual humility. Where does that come from? That flows from seeing and savoring the good news of what Jesus did in history. So I'm going to unpack that now and show you how that works biblically, okay? I want to convince you that that statement is true from the Bible, okay? So how do we create communities that are not filled with Pharisee-like contempt for other people because of this perceived sense of pride? How do we avoid the pitfalls that that always creates? How, how, how is it that we can create communities where we don't look at each other with contempt because everyone doesn't have it together like we think we do? So today, bridging off Jesus' parable, Luke 18, Pharisee tax collector, like we saw last week, we're going to be looking at how Paul talks about this in the book of Philippians, okay? I'm, I'm imagining, what would Paul say to this Pharisee? It's not hard because he just tells us. What would Paul say to this Pharisee in terms of the breakdown of horizontal relationships that creates disunity, that disintegrates, meaning like lack of integrity in church? So I want you to flip over to Philippians chapter 1, and this is where we're going to hang out for the most of today. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 27. Philippians 1, 27. So as we're thinking about community and unity, we can capitalize on something that a lot of us are thinking about right now in this season, and that's football, right? A lot of us are going to go home and watch football. It's the football weather is here, you know, the nights are cool, sleeping with the windows open, get out the sweatshirt maybe in the morning. And what, a football team is very similar to what I think Paul has in view here in chapter 1 of Philippians. So think about how a football team works. A football team has a clear opposition, right? The, what do we say, the opposing team. And for them to score a touchdown, 11 guys have to work together in tandem, right? Everybody has a job, a very clear job, 11 of the guys. And you can always see when you watch football and watch the replays, sometimes there's a breakdown in that unity and something good does not happen, right? Like if the offensive line just lays down and doesn't block for the, for the quarterback and the running back, they're not going to get very far. There's going to be no TDs, right? If there's fighting in their huddle and they don't like each other and they're calling each other names and they're accusing each other of things, that's not a good sign for when they line up with the ball and it's go live and you got the opposition right in front of you, right? But think about watching a beautifully executed play. And when we watch football on TV, 
We see this all the time because they'll show you the replay, and sometimes the announcers will draw it out. Look at this offensive lineman, how he blocked here, the other one blocked here, and they open up this hole, and that running back went right through. They all did exactly what they were supposed to do. They got 15 yards in the first down. And you see all of that working together, that united, mutual, living organism moving down the field. And when that happens, like, it's actually, I think, it's beautiful, right? It's beautiful. Why, why would we even say it's beautiful? Because I think intuitively we know that when everybody's working together to do their job and success is a result, there's beauty in that. There's beauty in that. Like, if we see a beautiful play like that, you might, you know, slap your, brother, your, your buddy or whatever on the leg and be like, did you see that? Like, let's enjoy this together. That's, that's beautiful. And Paul has, I think, a similar thing in mind here where the stakes are much higher than a football game. Look at verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let's stop right there. So how you conduct yourself in community is a big deal. Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So let your life reflect that you believe in the gospel. The gospel that you say you believe has implications for how you live your life. That's what Paul is saying here. So let me just remind, he's saying, remind the ancient Philippian church and us today, your manner of life is a big deal. But let's ask why. Paul, why? Why? And Paul knows that we, many of us are going to ask the why question, and he's good at anticipating that, and so he answers the why question. Your conduct is a big deal. Your manner of life in light of the gospel is a big deal because, as we keep reading, I want you to stand firm in one spirit. What does that sound like? Look at verse 27. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, here it is, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit. With one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So translation, I want you to be strong in your unity. He said it like three times in three different ways, right? Uh, standing firm in one spirit, one mind, side by side. He's emphasizing unity, right? If your conduct is not in, in line with the gospel, if you're acting like a Pharisee that doesn't understand the gospel, there's no, unity has no chance. If your conduct is crazy sinful without repentance, unity has no chance. But then we can ask another why question. So Paul, why is unity such a big deal? And he says, great, let me answer. Verse 28. So I want you to back up so you can see the connection. Um, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. There's an opponent in view. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ you should not only believe in him, here it is again, but suffer for his sake. There is an opposition. There will be suffering. It's not going to be easy. Engage in the same conflict that you saw I had 
and now here that I still have. So in the context of the book of Philippians, Paul is in prison. And you can imagine if Paul was your church planter and he's in prison, you're thinking, I could probably go to prison too. So there's conflict. There's opposition. See that? Verse 30, engaged in the same conflict. So you're all are engaged in the same conflict that could lead to prison. You saw I had and now hear that I still have. So why is unity such a big deal? Because in the context of suffering, in the context of the threat of you might have to go to prison for your faith, the fact that there's an opposing team, there's a whole world out there that, that thinks you're kind of crazy for believing in this Jesus. Paul's saying, in light of that, if you can stay united, standing side by side with one another, of the same mind, you can withstand the opposition. The church will march on in beauty. The church will continue to do what God has promised it will do, right? So let's lay out, let's review what we've seen Paul. Let me just summarize real, e real quick, real easy to see. Verse 27, Christian behavior leads to unity. Also verse 27, see that? And that leads to strength in the face of opposition or persecution. That's verse 28. Paul's laying all that out, okay? Saying Philippian church, Vine church, hope you're convinced. Community, unity, big deal. I hope you can see that from the text. Okay, so what does that have to do with connecting last week to this week? What does that have to do with the Pharisee in Luke 18? I've already said it, but let's review it again. Jesus told us that when there's a lack of trust in the gospel and a trusting in ourselves instead, that's going to lead to pride. And pride always, individual pride, thrust together in a group, always going to lead to chaos. Breakdown in community through overt or subtle contempt for other people. Let's go back to the football illustration. There's this new program. I don't know if you call it a program. I don't know what you call it. Uh, there's this new way to pay college players now. And it's called name, image, and likeness. A lot of you have heard of this, okay? And so if you haven't heard of it, let me explain it. And I might screw it up so you can correct me afterwards, but I think the idea is this. For decades... Colleges have made, I think, billions of dollars off the backs of elite college athletes, mainly basketball and football players. And so these guys do all the work to make billions of dollars for the universities. You know, imagine how much revenue is generated at Camp Randall every week that there's a home game, right? And that's just the beginning. And so for many years, people have said, this is unfair. And I could, I could be persuaded of that. And so they've created a program called Name, Image, and Likeness. And what that means is, is that the university uses a, any athlete's name, image, and likeness to make money 
like selling a jersey of the star quarterback or something. The athletes can participate in that revenue. I don't, I'm not sure about all the details, but that's the point, okay? Before, that was illegal. Before, if you participated in revenue, you might get your, your national title revoked. Lots of examples of this. So it sounds good on paper. I, I, I applaud them for trying to think of a creative solution, but I get hung up on this when I think about the human heart from the Christian worldview. And I don't know what the right answer is, because I do think it's unjust to have millions of dollars go to universities, you know, on the backs of these guys' talents. But I think it could create really weird team dynamics. Consider yourself the star quarterback that is making a million dollars a year now because you play for Alabama or Clemson or Ohio State or something like that. And it'd be easy to look down on that second, third string. You're like, man, I'm, I'm kind of the man. I mean, look at this money I'm making. I'm making more money than the assistant coach. He's going to tell me what to do. Or it could go the other way too, right? The offensive lineman who's not getting paid starts to resent the pretty boy quarterback that he is getting paid. Like contempt for one another in horizontal relationships like the Pharisee, that could go either way, either from arrogance or from jealousy. I'm better than these guys because I'm getting paid. I'm better than these guys getting paid because I'm not the sellout. I'm really here because I love the game. These guys are just doing it for the money. But also consider this angle, like just the language of my image, my name, my likeness. It's me, 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 me. And I think that could create some tricky team dynamics. What's the focus? Is the focus me or is the focus the unity of our team? I don't know what the solution is, right? I'm being that guy that's like critiquing things without good solutions. You don't want to be that guy, okay? But I'm just here to make a point uh, and give you an illustration. I think that kind of thing could create problems for team unity in college sports. But the opposite of that is what Paul is advocating for in Philippians chapter 1. What's the opposite of the Pharisee in Luke 18? And how does that build up community that's strong in the face of a context that doesn't love your Christian convictions? Let me say it again. The opposite of the Pharisee feeling contempt for others or the player on the team feeling contempt for other teammates is Christian humility. That leads to humility. Sorry, Christian humility, that leads to unity. That leads to strength to withstand the obstacles of the world. Like if that football team's not strong, really, really strong, the opposing team is hard to overcome. Same in the church. That's what Paul is saying in Philippians 1. You guys have to be strong. There is an opposing team. You have to be strong. It all starts with humility. 
I feel like name, image, and likeness is going to chip away at humility for team dynamics. I could be wrong. But I know it's true in the human heart. And it seems like Paul's laying that out here, as we're going to see in a second. See, it all starts with humility. The Pharisee did not love humility. He loved himself. He didn't love God. He loved himself. He didn't love others like the tax collector sitting next to him. He loved himself. Paul's teaching the opposite here in Philippians 1 to them then and to us now. Again, the point is this. Community that's strong in the face of challenges is founded upon mutual humility that flows from seeing and savoring the good news of what Jesus did in history. Let me give you more evidence biblically for that. I really want you to believe that. Okay? Let's keep reading. Now chapter 2. So Paul keeps going. He's like, Philippians, I want you to be strong. Fine church, he says, I want you to be strong. Chapter 2, verse 1. He keeps going. Just remember, in your Bibles, there were no chapter markings originally when this was written. This is just one thought. Okay? He continues with his line of thinking. Verse, two, uh, verse 1 of chapter 2. So, if there's any encouragement in Christ, meaning like if you, if you believe in Jesus, encouraged by the gospel, any comfort from his love, comfort from the gospel, any participation in the spirit, if you're, if you're filled with the spirit, any affection and sympathy, a sign of being united and loving each other as you've been loved. Verse 2, complete my joy by being, here it is again, unity of the same mind, the same love, being in full accord, he's, he's hammering home unity, and of one mind. Four different descriptors there. Same mind, same love, full accord, one mind. How are we going to do that, Paul? How's that going to happen? Verse 3 happens. Look at verse 3. So, in order to pull that off, here's what he wants us to do. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility, there's that word, count others more significant than yourselves. Verse 3, think about it. That's the opposite of the Pharisee in Luke 18, right? Look at it. Do nothing from selfish ambition or vain conceit. The Pharisee is 100% selfish. It's all about me. Praise God, praise me because I'm so awesome. And he's conceited. He's selfish, right? The opposite of that is verse 3 of chapter 2. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. This tax collector, he's an idiot. He doesn't have it together like I do. What's the opposite? Man, I'm no better than this tax collector. How could I look down on him? Every sin that he's got is, I can see, I'm, I, I could do the exact same thing. Put me in the right context. And Paul's saying, Run the other way from the Pharisee. Verse 4. He keeps going. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. 
And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So, so if we're going to have communities that have integrity, if we're not going to have communities that wilt in the face of persecution, if we're going to have communities that look unique in the world through love, humility, and strength, what is Paul asking us to do in this text? What is he doing? What is he demonstrating for the Philippian church then and for the Vine church now? I think he's just simply asking us, real simple, stare at Jesus. Consider Jesus. See and savor King Jesus. Meditate on who Jesus is. See, what did the Pharisee do in Luke 18? He's just staring at himself. It's all about me. Is what we say in our house. Me, me, I love myself. I have my picture on my shelf. Great summary of narcissism. That's the Pharisee. He's staring at himself and he's staring at others. He's staring at the wrong thing. See, if we just stare at ourselves and stare at others, we eventually just end up biting and devouring each other. That's the words the Bible uses. And God's word here gives us a better path. Paul lays this path out in clear terms for the sake of unity in community. He's saying, keep looking at Jesus. Keep considering Jesus. Remember Jesus. Follow Jesus. Stare at Jesus. Imitate Jesus. That's why he wrote verse 2. Let, let's take him seriously this morning. Let's practice this, right? Look at verse 5 again. Of chapter 2. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Have this mind among yourselves. So Philippian church, Vine church, I want you to think this way. I want you to have this mindset, which is yours in Christ Jesus. You already have it. If you're in Christ, if you've repented of your sin and turned to Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, you have this already. This is who you are. You already have this mindset. Let me remind you, this is your mindset, whether you know it or not. I'm just calling you to be who you are, that's what he's saying. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. All right, so let's talk about Jesus. Let's stare at Jesus. Let's remember Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. Jesus didn't claim his rights. He was God, but didn't embrace that in this gospel moment in history he didn't claim his rights love compelled him to a different path what did that path look like it looks like verse 7 he emptied himself jesus laid it all out there he didn't leave anything on the field he didn't hold back his love he didn't restrain himself from giving everything he fully spent himself he emptied himself how by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Think about this. God himself, a servant. You don't see that in other religions of the world. You don't see God himself 
humbling himself. You don't have that in Islam. You don't have that in Hinduism. It's like the president of the company cleaning the toilets. It's like the king of the nation willing to sleep on the streets with the homeless people. It's like the millionaire supermodel being willing to wear clothes from the secondhand store. These things do not happen in our world today. But that's our Jesus. Verse 8, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And this servanthood, it's not just doing tasks. Like Jesus' servanthood goes a step further than just tasks. It goes to laying down his whole being. Like he didn't withhold his very life, right? That's some intense servanthood. And so Paul's laying all of that out, like, guys, remember, this is the Jesus we worship. This is who he is. This is what he's done. Look at his humility. It's amazing. This is the mind that you have to have, that you already do have if you say you're a Christian. Let's live like it. Let's be who God says we are. Let's be who God says we are. Let's live in light of the mind that God says we already have. Humility like Jesus, servanthood like Jesus, self-sacrifice like Jesus. Let's, let's imagine with Paul how powerful this kind of community would be. Like who wouldn't want to be in a community like this, right? Doesn't that sound great? Doesn't that sound like a, a contrast to the anguish of the world we live in with communities falling apart left and right? Like everyone's united in this mutual web of humility like Jesus and receiving humility from others. Everyone united in this mutual web of serving one another like Jesus and being served. Everyone united in this mutual web of, of self-sacrifice like Jesus. That sounds like strength and community that can withstand opposition because it's founded upon Jesus-like humility. And I just want to encourage us as a church. This isn't a, this isn't a sermon to just like have everyone just feel guilty and go home and like, I just do more, try harder. But I think there's evidence of this already happening that we can see and name and be thankful. Like, honestly, I see this in our elder board. This humility, this mutual deference to one another, this, this desire not to just get, get my own way, and if I don't get my own way, I'm stomping out. Like, that, we don't have a track record of that. I'm so thankful for that. I'm so thankful that I can submit myself to these other men that have this kind of conduct. Are we perfect? Absolutely not. But I think we're heading in the right direction. There's a desire to repent when we fail. I see this kind of um, this kind of servanthood and willing to be generous. Uh, recently, there was a I don't remember how long it was ago, a few days ago at least, uh, maybe a few weeks, just a call for 
someone in our church needing school supplies. And that need was, need was met, so I heard. I guess what's cool, it, didn't, it had nothing to do with me. Our church is just doing this. So evidence of the Holy Spirit alive in us. There's a need for school supplies, for a family. Need met. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. That's, that's the humility of Jesus. The servanthood of Jesus alive in us as a church. I see this with our our sending of the, of the echoes last week to Ecuador. A reflection of self-sacrifice is your money. And man, they, they raised their money in a hurry. I, I, I sensed that about our church. Like, I don't think this is going to be hard for them. And, and I was right. Because you guys have a track record of generosity. That looks like self-sacrifice. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. And the reality is, yeah, we're all failures in this too, right? It's not all victories, but there's freedom to be honest about our failures. Here's, here's where the gospel comes, comes alive. There's freedom to be honest about our failures because our success didn't earn us anything. You feel that? It was never about your success in the first place. So your failures aren't ultimately disqualifying. They just free you. The gospel, where Jesus' success given to you as a gift, then frees you to get back up in your failure, be honest about it, repent of it, and keep returning to Jesus because it's all about him. So when you fail, I'm not as self-sacrificing as I should be. I'm not as generous as I should be. I'm not as humble as I should be. When I see myself in the Pharisee, I can be honest about that and say, Lord, would you help me to run the other way? Lord, I believe. Would you help my unbelief? Lord, I repent and I receive again that your perfection covers my imperfection. And I just receive it as a gift and I trust you by faith. There's freedom. To believe that you are who God says you are when you do that. You're not disqualified. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. You are who God says you are. He says you're not condemned when you do that process. When you simply trust his work on your behalf. It's all grace. It's all mercy. And just like the tax collector, that will change your life when you see that. Let me say the point again. Community that is strong in the face of challenges or opposition is founded upon mutual humility that flows from seeing and savoring the good news of what Jesus did in history. That's what Paul's doing here. That's why he labors to lay all this out. Like a lot of times we, we read Philippians chapter 2 as like this creed of the beauty of the gospel, and it is that. But remember what he's doing in context. He's laying all that out because he wants the Philippian church to see that the power of what Jesus did translates to how you live in community for the sake of the church marching on on its, on its mission. So keep staring at Jesus. Keep considering Jesus. Keep loving Jesus. Keep remembering Jesus. When he gets big, then I get small, the people around me get small, and then I'm just free to love and be united because I'm just, I'm just looking at him. Looking at him. It's all about him. All right? Let's pray together.
Father, thank you so much for your word that helps us so much. And, and Lord, I pray that you would um, take the words of, of your Bible and you would apply it to our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit for the sake of what you want to do with us as your church. And may it continue week after week. In Jesus' name, amen.